that's the beauty of her of her method is that you know you get to adapt it and bring to it your own lifestyle and your own family situation and so it's adaptable to you mm-hmm. you don't have to do it perfectly you don't have to do it exactly as this way or that way you only have to do what is right for your family Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Rachel Leibowitz from the Charlotte Mason Plenary. In this episode, we continue our conversation about the kindergarten school and discover if it is truly the best training ground for children. And we also discuss the merits, joys, and troubles of doing kindergarten at home with small children. Now, if you haven't yet, please check out the CM Plenary website, as there's a bunch of great stuff there, including the annotated versions of both Volume 1 and 6, as well as the form guides that Rachel talked about in our last episode. You can follow the link in the description of this episode, as that'll help us out as well. And now, on to the show. All right, so chapter three. Chapter three. Yeah. Further consideration of the kindergarten. It's interesting that she has two chapters for kindergarten, and she has two parts dedicated to habits. So in some things, you can see a couple of things that she re-emphasizes. Like yeah. you need to get this point. I'm I'm reemphasizing this for you. Well, and that makes sense, especially since it was a lecture series, where it, you know the, you know you have to hear it and then you have to hear it again, and you go, oh yeah, she's saying the same thing again. That makes sense. Yeah, I hadn't put the two parts next to the two parts or the two chapters. Well, I mean, we talked about that during during habits, and what was interesting about that is the first chapter she talked about one aspect of habits. And the next chapter, she talks about another aspect of habits. And I feel like she's doing the same thing here. First, she talked about the mother being the kindergarten teacher and and being the best person for it and the family being good for the kindergarten. And then she comes back in with further consideration of the kindergarten. And she talks a lot about uh, about she, she gives some examples of things. She gives some stories from the past. She gives some other thoughts about kindergarten. And where she ends is, I think, a great place to start. So she ends, right, flipping ahead to the very end. She ends with a question. She says, with these important utterances, I must conclude a superficial examination of the very important question. Is the kindergarten the best training ground for a child? So that's the question that she ends with, which clearly by the time you get there after reading through this, your answer should be easy to come by because she doesn't answer it. (laughs) Right. She's building up to the question. She's building up to that question. So I think that's the question that we're answering for this whole chapter is, is the kindergarten the best training ground for a child? The answer is no. (laughs) Yeah. And the answer is no. Because the implied other side of that is, is, is this, is, is the kindergarten or is the home the best training ground for the child? 
and she leaves that little bit out. The kindergarten of the the artificial atmosphere of the kindergarten or the natural atmosphere of home. Right. Thank mm-hmm. you. And and that's the that's what's left unspoken here. And 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 so I, I wanted to I wanted to read that early before we really got into the meat of this is that that's where she ends up. And I think that's the important thing that we need to keep in mind as we read through this is that's her overall conclusion. And so when she gives other examples of things that don't necessarily make sense with that, we need to keep in mind where she's going and and what her, what her plan is as she's making her way through this lecture. Well, we start with the childhood of Tolstoy, which I randomly picked up the audio for Anna Karenina from our library. Cause I was like, Oh, this is available. I'll start listening to it. And he goes into detail and he is very verbose and just talks and talks and talks. And so the fact that he wrote the, his first books were childhood, boyhood and youth is a trilogy in starting in 1852 before he wrote his War and Peace, before he wrote Anna Karenina. And I'm kind of interested to go back and read these because he gives a picture of childhood from a child's perspective. And so she she talks about those books and the fact that we don't really see what children are actually like because they keep to themselves. And they, they keep to themselves in a general way. Yeah. She says the the children keep to themselves in a general way, their winning ways and frank confidences notwithstanding. But if one of us do by chance get a child revealed to him, he is startled to find that the child has by far the keener intelligence, the wiser thoughts, the larger soul of the two. Mm-hmm. She says, if genius can lift the veil and show us that a child is a person of infinite possibilities, that there's so much more to a child that... Like she said, the the child's soul is the larger of the two. And yet we underestimate children so much. We do. We shall be dismayed at the slights we have been putting upon childhood, or I'm sorry, upon children in the name of education. Yeah. And then when we see children as they are, I love that line too, to see children as they are, then we know the true meaning of education and our own responsibility in bringing that education to a child. I feel like I'm, you know, again, in the dredges of my memory, there's a poet that she has quoted in the past that did this as well, who had like memories of age three or something ridiculously young. And he wrote about it. Do you know? I think you're talking about Thomas Traherne in volume six, possibly. I don't know. (laughs) Okay, so if you're looking in volume (laughs) six, volume six, chapter two, Children Are Born Persons, she quotes from Thomas Traherne, a British poet, from his book, Centuries of Meditations. It's a quote from his book about when he was a child. Here, let me read it. I was entertained like an angel with the works of God in their splendor and glory. Is it not strange that an infant should be heir of the whole world and see those mysteries which the books of the learned never unfold? The corn was orient and immortal wheat, which never should be reaped nor was ever sown. I thought it had stood from everlasting to everlasting. The dust and stones of the street were as precious gold. 
The green trees transported and ravished me. Their sweetness and unusual beauty made my heart to leap. Boys and girls tumbling in the streets were moving jewels. I knew not that they were born or should die. The streets were mine. The people were mine. Their clothes and gold and silver were mine as much as their sparkling eyes, fair skins, and ruddy faces. The skies were mine, and so were the sun and moon and stars. And all the world was mine, and I the only spectator and enjoyer of it. I think I think it might have been him. I, I don't think it was the ch- uh, volume six, because I, I haven't really... Div- dove into volume six as much yet but she repeats so much so she may have and it's it's that idea of the poet being able to recall and and then put it into words from when he was so young and 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 like you were mentioning it, it takes a genius to lift that veil and show it to us so that we can see and then sometimes remember what it was like to be a child so then the next example, she gave the example of Tolstoy with his childhood, boyhood, and youth. The next one was called A Story of a Child, and she wrote that in 1892. Um, so it was a relatively recent book. And, and who was it that wrote that? Uh, Miss Margaret DeLand. She was an American author. Mm-hmm. Talking about what it's like to grow up on the surface of what appears to be a normal family. <laughs> appears to be (laughs) that's what the that's what the generalization thing says she says our only means of true intimacy with a child is the power of recovering our own childhood a power which we are apt to let slip as of no vital importance so we have to remember our own childhood and remember what it feels like to be a child and so so often in our society Children are not treated as persons, not given freedoms and the rights, say, that adults would have. And so to to treat another child as a person is to treat that other child with the same respect as, say, you would give an adult. Mm-hmm. And also to, to cherish that time of childhood, um, to protect it, to cherish it, to, to guard it. To guard it, yes. Well, and to guard it for the child that doesn't know that it needs to be guarded. Because mm-hmm. so often children want to grow up faster than they can. And I can remember that from being a child myself is wanting to be older and always being excited for the next year and the things that I'll be able to do when, I, when I'm that age. And, and when I get to that old, then I'll be able to do those things. And, and that was always one of, the, one of the primary thoughts was getting older is going to be so much better. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so children don't have that concept of that what they have right now is something that is, that is precious and is, is needing to be guarded and is a wonderful time in their lives. And so that's that's part of the role of the parent to be able to to be able to to help the child enjoy those years. Uh, it reminds me of when uh, when the twins were born. Uh, we were in a hospital for Isaac and Lily when they were born, and my role as father in that scenario, because we were in the hospital for a couple of days, was to be the bouncer. Mm-hmm. Was to be the guy at the door who told the nurses, "No, everybody's sleeping. You can go away." 
And they're like, but I need to take vitals now. No, you don't. It's okay. They're alive. I see them breathing. Go away. <laughs> and and that's the same role of, of the parent is when those things come along and the child's really looking forward to the next thing, you get to be that bouncer and be like, well, yeah, but it'll it'll come when it comes. But you know, steer the child back to, to now. Mm-hmm. Right. And to be able to live in the present, the present moment yeah. with your children. Yeah. Well, and living in the present can be a hard thing for us to do because we're all, we all tend to be working towards something and working to get something. And there's always something out there that, that we're, we've grasped, grasped onto that, that that's the thing we're living for. And, and so what's happening right now doesn't matter as much as that thing. Well, I find I do that even in day-to-day life. I said, okay. We're eating lunch next. Well, it's still 10 o'clock. It's like, no, I, I have still, I have time. And especially when it's like, okay, John's coming home from work. We've, we've, this is the next thing that's happening, but I still have that chunk of time, whether it's 30 minutes or an hour to not fritter away, right? to, to focus and be present with that. And I, I need to work on that because uh, that I kind of live for the next moment of something, the next marker in the day, where I'm always looking forward to that next marker. Well, and it's it's a it's a for me it tends to be a defense mechanism for when things start getting crazy and overwhelming, and definitely at work when things are getting crazy. I, you know, when I'm under my under my head and I'm just trying to trying to get things done and get things out the door because I've got so much going on. The only thing I can think about is whatever the next task is going to be. And you finish that task and, all right, what's the next one? What's the next one after that? How do I schedule the next two hours to get me to the end of the day and get all of these things done? And so it can be that defense mechanism to just look forward to the next thing. So... Uh, yeah, staying, staying, staying present and in the moment is is a very good skill to have, and it's something that if we can find some way of imparting onto our children is would be good. All right, well, I feel like we beat that dead horse. <laughs> she she kind of concludes here. She summarizes these two examples: Tolstoy's childhood and that of Miss Deland's little heroine would appear to be a far cry from the kindergarten, but as a matter of fact. These two revelations of what children are bring our contention to a point. So basically, she just gave an example, says, hey, remember reading this book and remember reading this book. These are examples of what a kindergarten, an official kindergarten is not. So so she just gave two two examples of what of what education for a for a young person should be or could be or two good examples of that kindergarten time. Yeah. A a good childhood, which is contrary to what the, the prescribed method of kindergarten at this time. I think it's more the prescribed view of children at the time. Or uh, that too prescribed view of children. I, I think that makes more sense. Interesting. And then she gives an example of the, the, the professor who was told, you know, asked by the librarian, okay, you're in the field of science. Which books do I no longer need? She said, he said, you know, take everything that's more than 10 years old and <laughs> put it down in the cellar. So this is a quote from a 
paper about First Corinthians 13, talking about putting oh, little things away. It's like she takes us so out of context, but it <laughs> it's it it applies right here. And education changes, and and even though we want and for the our cravings of a lazy human nature, we want an educational pope, but we don't have that. We must think things out for ourselves as well as work out those things that belong to the perfect bringing up of our children. That was the quote I was going to point out, that we may not have an educational pope. We must think for ourselves, or as she says in uh, another yeah. volume, mix with brains. And that's, <laughs> the, <laughs> that's the beauty of her, of her method is that, you know, you get to adapt it and bring to it your own lifestyle and your own family situation. And so it's adaptable to you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do it perfectly. You don't have to do it exactly as this way or that way. You only have to do what is right for your family. I read a, a blog post where someone pointed out that not even Charlotte Mason herself is the educational pope that we always need to look to. So in, good. Oh, in addition nice. to, oh, man. in addition to, you know, her saying there's not one, she's not at the end all to be all either. Right. That's we funny. must think out for ourselves as well as work out those things that belong to the perfect bringing up of our children. Our children. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that goes back to something you've said a couple times, Rachel, is that is that it's about what works in in our family and for our right. children and, and which things happen when it, it's, it's a, it's a method. It's not a prescribed system of do this, do that. And that's, that's our job as the parent. To mix with brains. Yeah. I like that quote too. That's a good one. It's <laughs> a good one. So here, here's where she, she says we reverence Froebel. He raised an altar to the enthusiasm of childhood upon which the flame has never since gone out. Well, I think here's a the case of the highlighting. John had the first part highlighted. <laughs> well, no, so the funny thing is I had the second part, the, the, the part that you just quoted highlighted, but I remembered the first part. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because I thought I I thought it was interesting is uh, she says uh, many of his great thoughts we share. We can't say we borrow. Because some, like the child's relation to the universe, are at least as old as Plato. So she says, these things have been around for a while, so they're not his thoughts. They're not our thoughts. We just kind of, we we all have them. And others belong to universal practice and experience. And this shows their psychological rightness. He gathered diffused thought and practice into a system. And then, like you said, he did something even greater as well. Yeah. Kindled that fire, kindled that zeal. And that we take the best ideas from the best minds throughout the ages. And that is what she does in making her educational philosophy. I mean, she talks so much in all of her books about Froebel and Pestalozzi and Ruskin. And she takes a little from everybody. She takes the best. And then she also, mm-hmm. of course, talks about um, some other educational philosophers that she did not agree with, um, especially uh, Herbart. And so she's taking the best ideas from all of these philosophies and melding it into her own. So kind of a tangent, one of the things as I was digging into Froebel a little bit was he was actually married twice, 
but I don't find any record of him having children. He lived at one point with an, a family that had three children. And so he, as well as Charlotte Mason, had that experience of living in close proximity with kids, but never actually having kids of their own. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess I can't ever be a, a scholar of education then. You don't have the time. <laughs> <laughs> that That's true. <laughs> And I, I think that really has a lot to do with it is that because the time is you're able to look in with an outside view and not be stuck in the trenches all the time, you can have those higher thoughts about education and yeah. about children. So, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say that's true. And then we can learn from them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and like like she says, we can take we can take the best of all of these ideas. Yeah. Thank you. The best of all of these ideas. But here she has a caveat and I love this one. Um, Our first care should be to preserve the individuality and give play to the personality of children. So this falls into her principle number four, the sacredness of personality Mm -hmm. and to, to really respect a child's personhood and their personality and not to do anything that would cause a stumbling block to that child is so important. Now, persons do not grow in a garden, much less in a greenhouse. Again, play on kindergarten. It's supposed to be in a garden. It gives the idea of the being in a garden as well as the children or the plants in the garden. She's going, mm-hmm. ah, they're, right. They're it's not, not yeah, she doesn't like that analogy because they're not plants. <laughs> Yeah, and and you have the 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 gardener who's pruning and tending and you know actively shaping the child, and that's not what she advocates. She does not like that idea. She wants the child to be self educating and self growing, not the mediation of the parent or the teacher in constantly shaping the child and their education. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a quote coming up about the the mediation of the children everything is directed expected and suggested no other personality out of the book picture song no not even that of nature himself can get at the children without the mediation of the teacher so she's very much against that person in the way yeah the middleman and this goes to self-education as well So the very first chapter in volume six is titled self-education. She talks about how self-education is the only education. And it always reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. And it's probably one of your favorite quotes as well. And, And it comes from volume three. But she says, the question is not how much does the youth know when he has finished his education, but how much does he care? And about how many orders of things does he care? In fact, How large is the room in which he finds his feet set, and therefore, how full is the life he has before him? And that really is the purpose of education. Even though we're only talking about preschool and kindergarten, and as you said, you know, we're in the trenches, day-to-day life, nitty-gritty, it's these attitudes and these perceptions that allow us to see the broader picture about what education can be and what we owe to our children in terms of education. Mm-hmm. I know I know I've heard that quote before many times 
Have you have you heard that one yet? I don't I don't know. I, it's not ringing any bells. Okay. I, I that's that's one of the the ones that are that float around in the Charlotte Mason groups. It's, so I I really like it. It's a fabulous. The, the, how how large is the room that the child's feet are in? It's a good one. I love it. It's a good one. It's, I don't I, I I don't spend enough time um in the Charlotte Mason groups. The, <laughs> Charlotte Mason groups. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so she talked she talks here about uh like we were talking about that uh care needs to be given to preserve individuality. We talked a little bit about the the example of the garden that Charlotte Mason doesn't like at all. And then she talks about the fact that we need to have nature as the educator. She says the notion of supplementing nature from the cradle is a dangerous one. A little guiding, a little restraining, much reverent watching, nature asks of us. But beyond that, it's the wisdom of parents to leave children as much as may be to nature and to a higher power than nature itself. And that's something that that she talks about quite a bit in Volume two, parents and children, is the Ma- masterly inactivity. One, the masterly activity is something she talks about, but this last line to the higher power than nature itself, she talks about the the hand of the divine on the child, and mm. how how the there's the divine nature, and there's that divine guidance that is also on the child, and we need to work together with the with the spirit and with the child not against the spirit and against nature. Mm-hmm. So and, and putting up those roadblocks again. Right. And and blocking the child away from the spiritual side of things and and uh, you know she talks about ideas being of a spiritual nature and I I don't know it it's there's all all of that seems to be wrapped up in this short little paragraph here <laughs> where she's just kind of she's she's taking just a little bit like we'll we'll get we'll get back to it but this isn't this is a very important thing mm-hmm. and that education is body mind and soul and too often we think of it only as the mind and that we forget that that the body and the soul and the spirit play a part too and all of those things play a part in education and need to be educated well they all have to grow and they all have to learn and and the the child has to be able to has to be able to grow in all of those areas and so we as the teacher we have to be cognizant of those things and that you have to educate the whole person is kind of yeah. where i was going with that is that it's it's not just the mind and the brain that we're educating but we're educating the whole child the whole person and so you have to take into account the body the mind and the soul or the spirit yeah mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, she dives right back in. She says people who watch children, whether it's the the urchin in the street making, I guess, Catherine wheels, cartwheels, mm-hmm. or the children dancing, or the small boys and girls dry nursing their babies, the, the people who watch children are not ready to believe that the physical, mental, and moral development waits upon kindergarten teaching. She's inclined to question whether or not in carrying out the system of education that the the charming kindergarten, the, the teacher, is not in danger of sometimes greatly undervaluing the intelligence of her children. So 
all those three aspects are in play at all time before education, before even the kindergarten teaching. Talks about a, a person, a caller in a drawing room who was like, oh, I'm going to talk to this little child about the pretty Baba lambs. <laughs> and then the kid goes, isn't it a dreadfully horrible thing to see a pig killed? She's like, wait, what? <laughs> like, yeah. That child does not want to talk about the Baba lambs. <laughs> they need the the big stories, the Treasure Islands, the Robinson Crusoe, the Thermopylae, the Ulysses, the things that the children will play at over and over again. Not the uh, twaddle games of which they frisk like lambs, flap their fins, and twiddle their fingers like butterflies. They'll do it. <laughs> nice. Because they'll do it because it's a curious thing about human nature that we all like to be managed by persons who take pains to play on our amiabilities. Even the dog will be made foolishly sentimental. And she talks about this child, and, and you mentioned this in, in the annotated version, that VW, I'm sorry, WV is a child in her, that she taught. Right. And she'll do all of these things. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so she'll do all of these <laughs> things, but she is much more than that. Wow, that's funny. <laughs> well, so then we get to the... I, I, Crystal or Rachel, I don't remember. I read it. Who, okay, it was you, but, but we get to teachers being the mediators and how they mm -hmm. mediate too much. And the, the teacher oftentimes just needs to, needs to step off. She, she needs to step back. She needs to stop mediating. She needs to stop directing, expediting, and suggesting. And not giving twaddle of songs and stories and, and tunes and pictures so that she fulfills her function to the utmost. Right. You know, all the, the little paper crafts that come home if you go to kindergarten or even, you know, Sunday school at church. So. Yeah. Well, because if the child didn't bring something home, then clearly they didn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading in a description of a of a kindergarten, younger education place that said, okay, your child will not be bringing something home every day. <laughs> and they had, they, they had to spell that out for the parents to be like, no, that's not where learning happens. They're, they're not learning in that way. They're learning through play. They're learning through putting their hands on things. So they will not be bringing something home every day. But you can be guaranteed that learning is happening. So it's a, it's a distinction that, that stuck with me. Yeah. Oh, and this is comforting. This I loved. Um, she she says, you know, in the kindergarten, the, the, the kindergarten teacher's like, oh, the children are so happy and good doing these, these various things. She says, precisely, the home nursery is by no means a scene of peace, but I venture to think it a better growing place. <laughs> yes, I've got that down. <laughs> It doesn't oh. have to look serene and ideal to be good. That's oh, such a good thing. The chaos <laughs> that can ensue from... I, I have a friend who took a picture of her room and she's like, okay, you see here, this is my house. There are forts being made. There are memories being made. There are stories being told. There, are... But it is a mess. <laughs> and you can tell that people live here. 
So uh-huh. I I was comforted by that. Too many times like the perfect pictures on on Instagram or whatever can <laughs> can make us feel defeated like we're not doing yeah. good enough, right? But but it doesn't have to be perfect to be valuable and memorable and wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I I remind myself that those pictures are taken before stuff starts happening. <laughs> <laughs> they're at the setup that's, that's right? the perfect setup <laughs> exactly yeah. oh, that's funny we don't get the second picture maybe what we should do is we should start an instagram campaign of what it what it should look or what we want it to look like and what it actually looks like i think i think the hash or the the handle charlotte mason in real life charlotte mason irl tries to do that okay i could believe it but that would be fun is to have two pictures side by side of, hey, this is what the setup is, and this is what actually happened. Because <laughs> that, be, that would be fun. Yep. So she says then, uh, next section is kindergarten is a false analogy. That's the plant analogy again. Mm-hmm. And that analogy appealed to the orderly scientific mind, which does not much approve of irregular, spontaneous movement in any sort. Yeah. So they like the idea of people growing in a flower bed, which it's fascinating to think of this coming out before both world wars coming from Germany. Absolutely. Because Germany was so focused on utilitarianism in their educational system. And especially in volume six, she talks about how this really led to the first world war that they saw people as things and instruments of the state rather than as persons and uh, as persons of respect and individuality. And so she takes, because Froebel is German, she connects that even before, mm-hmm. like you said, even before the, the inklings of war. This is in, what, 1885. So, Yeah, quite a bit before. Mm-hmm. All of those. Uh, but that's something that we see in, in our schools in the United States now is we took a lot of the German principles of education. From Froebel. From Froebel. And, and others of the time. Yeah, the utilitarianism and the the goal of indoctrinating children into the state and getting them to be okay being on an assembly line and responding to a bell and not free thinking – Right, cogs in a wheel. Yeah, I, that's there's a lot of that in our in our school systems today, and 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 it has been that way for a long time, because we took those principles from Froebel, and we applied them in a way that I don't think is very good, mm-hmm. and they've been applied that way for a long time. So just another another reason that I think that I think Charlotte Mason was was really onto something even even early on before everything kind of turned sour. Mm-hmm. Now to figure a person by any analogy whatsoever is dangerous and misleading. There is nothing in nature commiserable with a person. She said because the analogy of a garden plant is very attractive, it's more misleading. The manifestations of purpose in a plant are wonderful and delightful, but in a person, such manifestations are simply normal. Because when you're when you're cultivating a garden, you want the flower to be beautiful and unique well a child is beautiful and unique just by being a child goes on if it implies that the the person needs to do something it means undue inter 
interference with the spontaneous development of a human being. To begin with, the Mother Games. It's a sweet conception, most lovingly worked out. So let me ask this. What What is she referring to here with Mother Games? I, I, I was kind of in the dark here. It's doing more than just letting the child grow. It's it's doing the patty cakes too early. It's doing, you know, counting your fingers and your toes too early. It's also it's also contriving games for educational purposes rather than just letting it be play and learning happens during play. So she talks about how the child starts to feel a pressure from the mother's games because she feels from the mother that there is an expectation here of I'm supposed okay. to perform, I'm supposed to do something, I'm supposed to learn something from this rather than just the ease of play. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. That's yeah, how it I does. read it. Well, and, and that makes sense. the other Thank part you. is, but a real labor is being put upon the child in addition to the heaviest two years of work that his life will ever know. So the, these these games seem so pretty and that and taking that the baby just is doing them but it's also adding on to their development well because the child is doing so much to learn just by being alive and looking at things and looking at his own fingers and toes and moving body parts and that yeah adding anything to that anything contrived onto the top of the work that the child is already doing Mm -hmm. puts a pressure on yeah, mm-hmm. puts a lot of pressure on. And it says the nerve centers and brain power have been unduly taxed. Some of the joy of living has been taken from him. And though his baby response to direct education is very charming, he has less latent power left for the future calls of life. And and I think this goes even further than the age of two, where direct education is has responses in in children, but. And they're, they're very charming, you know. Oh, look, so-and-so did this, and they can write their name <laughs> at age two. And and it's it's nice. You can see it. But that's not where it, the attention should be. And that applies throughout education, all through all 12 years of school education, um, that our society does that to kids. We put extra pressure on them to perform and to do, you know, certain exercises and tests and all this when when if they didn't have to spend all that mental energy on those standardized tests and other things they could actually be learning real valuable information definitely okay society of his equals too stimulating for a child which is which is a a, i mean the convenient segue here is that we were just talking about uh kids in schools as they're growing up. And that's what she's talking about here. She says, uh, let's follow the little person to kindergarten where he has the stimulus of classmates of his own age. It certainly is stimulating for ourselves. No society is so much. So wow. Word is words for ourselves. No society is so much. So as that of a number of persons of our own age and standing, this is the great joy of college life. A wholesome joy for all young people for a limited time. I think backing up for a limited time uh-huh. is is one of the key phrases there. Right. Not every year for 12 years. 
No. Not every year for 12 years. And then not after that. After that, after your college life, you move into life as a society where where you do have the children and you do have the elders and you do have the juniors. And and she says she's, she's talking about college being a, a joy. But also it's a joy for people who are 20 and who have or should have some command over their inhibit, inhab, inhab, inhibitions. In, Oh, in, inhibitory inhibi- centers. Inhibitory. In- inhibitory. Yeah. Well, she and she finishes out. She says, for everyday life, the mixed society of elders, juniors, and equals, which we get in a family, gives at the same time the most repose and the most room for individual development. And that's the answer to the question that I know we as homeschoolers feel a lot is, well, what about socializing the children? We have all wondered at the good sense reasonableness, fun, and resourcefulness shown by a child in his own home as compared with the same child in school life. So, And then she dives in further. She says, danger lurks in the kindergarten just in proportion to the completeness and beauty of its organization. She, uh, she starts going on a rant here. <laughs> or I guess she has started going on a rant against the... Uh, contrived kindergarten nature. She says, Tommy should be free. Tommy. When I read this the first time, uh, so we worked at it. Crystal and I worked at a camp, a summer camp when we were in college. And whenever there was an example about a child who you needed to do something with, it was little Timmy. (laughs) And so I read through this and I read it, Timmy a couple times. And then it finally, Oh, it's Tommy. Tommy should be free. Well, no, it's Timmy. Little Timmy should be free to do what he likes with his limbs and his mind through all the hours of the day when he is not sitting up nicely at meals. He should run and jump, leap, tumble, lie on his face watching a worm. She said nature will look after him and give him promptings of desire to know many things. And somebody must tell as he wants to know and to do many things. And somebody should be handy just to put him in the way and to be many things, naughty and good, and somebody should give direction, i.e. not contrived, not written out activities, not workbooks, just having, having little Timmy in nature with his face in the mud. So parents as philosophers, guides, and friends, but not as teachers or not as mediators and not as the middleman. So then the, the busy mother comes back with, well, I, I don't have the leisure to be that person. <laughs> I, if I do that, my child will run wild and get into bad habits. And after talking for two sections about habits, she says, we don't need to make a fetish of habits. <laughs> Education is a life as well as a discipline. And I'm like, really? Really? You just spent all this time talking about habits and how amazing they are and how we need them and how they make life run smoothly. And then you go and say, well... We don't need to make Meh. a fetish out of it. All things in moderation. <laughs> oh, exactly. Man. Well, I guess if it is the three-legged stool, life has to happen as well. So I, yeah. And then she says, as for <laughs> habits, there's no habit or power so useful to man or woman as that of personal initiative. So, so that that's number 20 we can add to the list. Oh, We, we came up with 19 habits she had listed out. There's there's number twenty personal initiative, but that's not a habit. Well, that's I don't know. 
I read this and I went, are, are you serious? We just read <laughs> all of this. We're just learning all about habits. And now you just say, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter as much as we thought it mattered. Eh, whatever. So. That is funny. I, I hadn't put that together. I don't think that's true, but that's kind of what it feels like. <laughs> and back to mediators talking about parents and teachers needing to sow opportunities. And there's so many opportunities in everyday life. We just have to notice them. Yeah. In one way, the children of the poor have better chances than those of the rich. Poor children get an education out of household ways. But there still is a great deal of good teaching that be got out of a wisely ordered nursery. And the small persons in possession should, as, as I've said, afford much kindergarten training to the little family at home. And then, at six or seven, definite lessons should begin, not watered down or served with jam, but brought to the children. So what if there's an only child? She talks about having a, maybe a, a cottage child would be a better companion, a lively young nursemaid, and doing things to the best of their ability. Yeah, she says the child will have taught himself to paint, paste, cut paper, knit, weave, hammer, and saw make lovely things in clay and sand, build castles with his bricks. Possibly, too, will have taught himself to read, write, and do sums, besides acquiring no end of knowledge and notions about the world he lives in by the time he is six or seven. Because mm-hmm. you've been living life. And, and he shall do these things because he chooses, provided that the standard of perfection in his small works be kept before him. Uh, this so so we get into uh, this this next bit. I, I thought was really interesting. She says the child should be allowed some ordering of his life. That uh, there's there's ordered life in the family, and and there's there's a lot of ordered life that is good, but the child needs to be given freedom to order his own life. She says, most of us have little enough opportunity for the ordering of our own lives, so it's well to make much of the years that can be given to children to gain this joyous experience. So another instance of parents being the, the I guess, I don't, bouncer is the word I used earlier, but the, the one who, who holds these things in high regard for their children is, is this as well. Is, hey, you have a chance, you have a time right now to order your own life, and you as the parent get to get to help your child experience that give them the space to do that yeah absolutely y'all have not read volume six yet correct i have not so in volume six she talks a lot about parents as philosophers guides and friends and so here's another instance of when you're the guide of uh, you know allowing your child this time to order their own lives and and their own time management the part I got out of this as well is that you don't need to mix lessons and play. Let them stay separate. Yeah. Let the child be in charge of their playtime. Yeah. And don't don't micromanage that like you might a lesson. Right. Exactly. Where in the lesson you have a very specific thing to do. Yeah. In play, let them do it themselves. Let them order it themselves. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That now you're making me really want to read volume six. <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff. It's really good stuff. 
We'll get there. We'll get there in a couple of years. <laughs> oh, man. Well, she talks about Helen Keller. She talks about the gal who taught Helen Keller, Ms. Sullivan. So tidbit real quick. She, um, Helen Keller published the autobiography, The Story of My Life in 1903. So this would have been like, you know, top of the line, brand new off the press oh, type of book that she's getting this, these examples out of. Well, when, when was this book published? So she, she wrote the original lectures in 1885, but then it was republished as a book several times and republished several instances. So I think this one is like 1905 or something like that. Mm-hmm. This is the, the fourth edition in 1905. I wonder if this section about Helen Keller was added, added on later. at some point. Yeah, I'm sure there were revisions. Because like you said, the book that she talks about specifically here wasn't, wasn't out yet. Written. Or did she have manuscripts or something? I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. But in light of time, I don't know how much we want to dive into. Well, a lot of this, um, uh, uh, she was, she's talking about, again, entering into a large inheritance of thought and knowledge of gladness and vision. Once words came into her life with ideas. And I, I think that was the big thing. Words brought new ideas into her life, and those ideas gave her life meaning and purpose and a way to move forward. Yeah. Um, and Miss Sullivan would not let the uh, psychologists have experiments on her child because she treated her as a person. She said, no, I don't want any more kindergarten materials. I am beginning to suspect all elaborate and special systems of education. They seem to me built upon the supposition that every child is a kind of idiot that must be taught to think. Whereas, if the child is left to himself, he will think more and better, if less showily. So again, coming back to children are persons. Children yeah. are smart. And and I feel like that's why she added this section in, because it resonated with her so much. Yeah. And here's an example of a teacher that took those values to heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And really protected her student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I need to go read that book. I know. I, know. <laughs> I want to read Adding every to book list. she mentions. I know. Oh, she mentions a lot of them. <laughs> she was so well read. Oh my gosh. Well, and not only was she so well read, she remembered it all too. And quoted it all. It's insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, insane. and it's it's interesting too because it's like she it is like a stream of consciousness as she's writing or dictating her some of her volumes and so she does make a few mistakes here and there but for the most part yeah, it's all she must have been narrating everything she read. You can almost guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a- <laughs> So then she she moves on and she recommends us to read What's called the special reports published by the Board of Education. I found those. There are many volumes of them. And they're like 700 page volumes. Good night. I don't know if she just used them as a reference or if it was her nighttime reading. <laughs> but the the British Empire published a, a special report 
about all of their colonies and how education was happening in all of these different places. Oh, that's interesting. So I just I had a very small dive into that because I was like, okay, if I go down this rabbit hole, I'm not coming out. Right. <laughs> I think we have the links to that over on the plenary website, the volume one resources page. We have lots of links okay. to to all of the a lot of the things that she mentioned. So you can go look at them. <laughs> yeah. That's and, good. And do that rabbit trail. Yes. Yeah. There's so many. <laughs> dive down all of that. What I found, what I found fun is, you know, as she's moving into this, she says, uh, I say, I, uh, let's see, she's talking about, she says the American mind, like the French seems to me severely logical as well as generously impulsive. Yeah. I read that and went, yeah, that, that, that sums about sums up. us up. <laughs> A theory comes liberally entertained and set to work with due appliances on, on a magnificent scale to do that, which lies in for the education of great people. That sounds about right. That's that's kind of how we operate over here. <laughs> and again, it is in America that the ideas of Froebel have received their greatest development, that the kindergarten has become a cult and the great teacher a prophet. But the impulse has worn itself out. Anyway, it's waxing weak now. And then Mr. Thistleton Mark wrote in the school journal about Froebel. And kindergarten. And then she says, I wish they would give up the name kindergarten. <laughs> Just call it something else. And then Dr. Stanley Hall, where was he? Oh, no, he wrote in the school journal. Uh, Mr. Thistleton Mark wrote in the Board of Education book, the special report. Oh, okay. And then he talks about kindergarten as well. Yeah. And then, and then we find our way right back to the end. Right where we, right where I, I started us was with these important utterances, I must conclude a superficial examination of the, of the very important question. Is the kindergarten the best training ground for the child? No. Again, no. No. <laughs> no. Definitively no. For all the reasons that we just talked about, for everything that we went through, no, the home is the best place for the child and the mother is the best teacher for the child. Yep. So if you've made it this far listening <laughs> and good on you for listening, because I don't know how long this is going to take after I finally edit it. But if you've made it this far, thanks for hanging out and know that you, the mother, and, and I'll add father in here, you, the mother and you, the father are the best equipped to teach your children. And your home is the best place to teach your children. Mm -hmm. And Charlotte Mason is is fully, fully on board with and fully confident in you, the parents, to be able to teach your children for all of the reasons that we went over and everything we've talked about so far and everything she wrote. Yeah. Rachel, any last last thoughts as we wrap this up? No, you wrapped it really well. I don't, I'm not sure I have anything else. Um, just that education is so much more simple and easy than many people think it to be, and I and I love that she that Charlotte, in no uncertain terms, shows us how confident she is in us as mothers and parents in educating our own children. Yeah. Very cool. 
Well, Rachel, I want to say thank you so much for for hanging out with us and being a part of our show. It was wonderful to have you. Uh, I'm so glad that we could do this. I'm so glad that we could figure out the logistics of it all. Thank you so, so thank much you for so having much. me. I had a great time. And go see her at a Charlotte Mason Plenary. Yeah, definitely. If you haven't checked her out there yet, definitely do. The annotated version of home education is one that that we have and Crystal uses as we go through these chapters to to find out all those little little bits and pieces that that are so fascinating and and really help you to understand what what Charlotte was talking about as she was writing these. So definitely go check out the plenary. And yeah. Thank you guys. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.